Welcome back to Night nice School, episode 12, Song of Myself, part 10. Back with me again is Mr. Wesley Shantz, my esteemed colleague. Welcome back, Mr. Wesley Shantz. Hi, good to be back. How's it going? It's going really well. I'm really happy to be doing this project. It's especially interesting because um, often on Mondays, that's our Harry Potter slot. But since, you know, we're teachers and we work with another teacher, sometimes things come up. And so it's nice that we always have night school, which is sort of on our off nights. It's like our... This is like our moonlighting project to go with the night school theme. Um, it's nice to have it to fill in so that we never lose time. Exactly. And that's, to me, that's one of the coolest things about books, especially poems. It's like something you could just take out any time and just read a little bit of it. And it's like, that makes that time more like, more like eternity almost. Yeah, it's part of something. It's part of the same stream. It is interesting how when one is reading a book, and I, I recall this experience very vividly from when I was in elementary school. I didn't like my classes that much, fourth through sixth grade, even though they were good classes. But I loved reading during our reading time. And um, yeah, I loved playing during recess, so I didn't read at that time. But I would read on the bus home. I didn't get car sick. I would read at home instead of doing my homework, which was a problem often because it was a magnet school and they expected better of me, um, but uh, they didn't get it. And, uh, <laughs> but uh, that sense of continuity, I'd get sucked into the stories. And I remember with the Harry Potters, which I just talked about, getting sort of sucked into those. And well, in this poem too, like you're saying, it's like, now this is the thing that we sort of just do. This is like the, the, the poem or the Game Boy in our back pocket that we just pull out when we have five minutes to just do something. I see this in my own students every day. They have a five minute passing period. They're listening to a song, playing a game on their, on their phone. It's something they look forward to. It's something they make time for, even if it's a small amount of time. And it is interesting to what extent you can sort of choose that game for yourself as a person. And this happens to be, be the game we're playing, the American poetry game plus some other literary analysis across genres and media. Yeah. And, and inviting people to notice that it's a game worth playing if they want to join in, just so it's like on their, on their radar a little bit more. Yeah. That's right. I think, and I think we cover a lot of bases with American poetry. I think we had a lot of demographics, a lot of people that would be interested in this. And, well, it deserves some attention. And so, well, 28, shall I get it going? Get it going. Is this then a touch? Quivering to a new identity, flames and ether, making a rush for my veins, treacherous tip of me, reaching and crowding to help them, my flesh and blood playing out lightning to strike what is hardly different from myself. On all sides, prurient provokers stiffening my limbs, straining the udder of my heart for its withheld drip, behaving licentious toward me taking no denial, depriving me of my best as for a purpose, unbuttoning my clothes, holding me by the bare waist, deluding my confusion with the calm of the sunlight and pasture fields, modestly sliding a fellow's senses away. They bribed to swap off with touch and go and graze at the edges of me. No consideration, no regard for draining my strength or my anger, fetching the rest of the herd around to enjoy them a while. Then all uniting stand on a headlong and worry me. The centuries desert, or desert, every other part of me. Desert, yes. The centuries desert, every other part of me. They have left me helpless to a red marauder. They all come to the headland to witness and assist against me. 
I'm given up by traitors. I talk wildly. I've lost my wits. And I and nobody else am the greatest traitor. I went myself first to the headland. My own hands carried me there. You villain touch. What are you doing? My breath is tight in its throat. Unclench your floodgates. You are too much for me. Hmm. I'm interested in this one. This is, uh, in some ways, more personal. I feel like, I don't know, that's the impression I get anyway. Because often he's giving us long lists of different types of people that he sort of observes, overhears, and whatnot. But this seems to be uh, a personal experience that he's kind of reliving here. And he gets he gets a little abstract with it, right? Um, in some ways, it's all an answer to that question. Is this then a touch? And the, uh, the effect of this, I think, is kind of like we were talking about, was it the last time where it's like, can that maybe have a, a negative impact on you, actually? Can it maybe not just pass right through you um, into pure poetry, but, but leave a kind of impression on you that might be dangerous? It seems like that's kind of what he's exploring here with the, um, I love it, the prurient provokers that, that surround him. And um, they're the ones kind of active here. He's, he's like the passive, uh, almost victim. I don't know if I want to say that, that exactly, but he's at least the patient undergoing their, their activity here. Uh, yes. That, that's, um, that's a question I would have, I guess, is who the who or what the prurient provokers are that have had this effect on him. And, um, and who's, especially that, that second short stanza, who's the red marauder or what is the red marauder? I mean, uh, and these traitors who um, have abandoned him. Um, it's like, I guess one way to interpret it might be saying like, every other sense, all of his sentries, right? His, uh-huh. his other senses sort of like fade when there's this, this all-powerful touch that comes upon him. Um, and the red marauder is like a beautiful, terrifying image for that, that soul, um, like all your attention focused on one thing, right? Uh, and that can be a very deep experience, but it can also be a, you know, a wild one, right? Where you lose your wits. Um, and he calls himself there the greatest traitor, right? He's, he's sort of sacrificed something of that, of that cool distance that we've seen him maintain throughout the whole thing so far and kind of lose his cool and get a little ornery here. It's, it's really different, this one. What yeah. do you make of it? There's a lot that I see here, and I, I certainly see what you're saying there. There's a lot of the Dionysian element in here, the aspect of losing one's wits and giving in to one's sensual desires or giving in to that which uh, one might not understand into emotion or something like that. Um, and there's a lot of imagery, I would say, that reminds one of the coming to be of human vulnerability through the story of the fall in Adams, the behaving licentious, depriving, unbuttoning, deluding, the, the idea of, you know, clouding one's senses, but also removing one's clothes, as in becoming more vulnerable to the elements, losing something, losing some clarity of conscience. 
that one no longer has. He's, he is himself unbuttoning his poetic clothing with his language here. He is revealing himself, it seems like, his vulnerabilities. Uh, instead of childishly telling us what he knows in this, you know, either pompous or sort of salutary or salutary way, he's now sort of revealing the person beneath all that pomp and circumstance. And though the, that line diluting my confusion with calm of the sunlight and pasture fields, I wonder if you read that sort of uh, ironically, and he's, he's saying that his confusion is being diluted as and he's receiving clarity, like sunlight, that he, he's not actually taken up in the Dionysian ele element. He's denied the Dionysian because he has the Apollinean sort of rationality or awareness of what's going on. And so he sort of denied that Dionysian confusion is how I, I read that that line. But then what's very interesting is I'm I'm with your interpretation of touch sort of de-witting him, getting rid of his wits, making him talk wildly and lose his intelligence, which is in the Odyssey, the reason Athena says she stays by Odysseus, even when he knows her not, is because he always keeps his head. And so the great, the great treacherous thing to do as man is to um, lose one's head, to give up one's rationality or one's awareness, one's wisdom, one's, one's highest faculty as a human. It's like turning one's back on being human. And that seems to be sort of what he's trying to do in sort of a Dionysian effort to recover either something he's lost or just to indulge in something that he thinks is potentially even greater or worth uh, risking everything for this touch. You villain touch, what are you doing? My breath is tight in its throat and clinch your floodgates. You are too much for me. It's interesting because that, that you are too much for me, that's, that language of strength and weakness is also moral language, right? You, you are too much for me is the language we use when we give in to a desire, right? It was just too much for me to bear. And so you give in to tears or it was too much for me to bear and you, you give in to temptation whether it be sexual or, or even more likely in our culture related to food, right? I'm not going to eat that today. And it's like, uh, no, actually you are. You've already eaten too. And um, <laughs> yeah. And so just the thing about the, met, the red marauder, it could very well be touch. I was also wondering whether that was sort of like how your senses or motivational systems would push the Dionysian element in you. And so this would be sort of disagreeing with my original point. Um, whether when you fulfill those, they poof, disappear, and they leave you alone with your judgment. And you have that sort of Christ on the cross moment of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because you fall out of alignment with those roles and the characters that you had been embodying in the pursuit of those desires, whether it be drink or food or sexual liaison, as he's constantly sort of alluding to with this, this language of derobing, um, that, um, what you're then left with after you sort of uh, fulfill those desires for a time is your own self-judgment. Um, and that that, well, I'm given up by traitors that like sort of those motivational systems or those emotions or those driving Dionysian elements within the self, they like Dei Phobos next to Hector and the Iliad do not stay around for the fight. Uh, they seem so real and so driving in the moment of, just like touch, right? But they do not last. And what's left is sort of 
the eternal judge within oneself, what the Freudians would call the superego. Um, and it, it doesn't think very much of you at all. And I mean, I do see that in you villain touch and you are too much for me that he, he's not simply accepting an everything goes mentality in these last two lines. He is suggesting that he is morally or physically or ethically weak. Like that. Yeah. I like that. He's kind of finally met his match here and it, it makes me respect him a little more actually as a, as a poet and as a, you know, a, a sort of being, being more honest in a way. Um, it just, it just strikes me that way that uh, he has kind of pushed the limits throughout this poem and he's finally come to a point at which he um, balks a little bit. Yeah. And, uh, and he writes that in there too. And that's like, he really does um, expose his own vulnerability here in a, in a, a really um, brave fashion, I think the the language of the the sunlight and the pasture fields um made me also notice this thing about the headland the headland the headland the headland it repeats over and over and right. it, i take it to be an image of that that limit right that limit between the land and the sea or the orderly the understandable comprehensible and that which you know, overruns, over marauds, you know, that's where the Vikings come from, is from the, from the sea. Um, and so he's kind of like on that limit throughout this, this section. And he's the one who's gone there. And he knows he's the only, he can only blame himself, really. Um, and he sort of accepts that. Uh, I, I find it, yeah, just a really interesting departure in a lot of ways. So I wonder if it's a kind of a portent of things to come or, or if it's going to be an outlier. Yeah, it's very interesting. It's scientific in that respect, too, that he includes his failures or, or the dragon that he is coming up against, the great challenge that even he, he quivers at or, or does not find himself up to the task of handling at this point. Yeah, that honesty, it's, it's very interesting. And I, I know as a teacher, I, I've often felt, I, I, I explain to my students if I'm mad about something outside of school or if I'm sad about something, uh, I generally try and give them some explanation for my emotion. And so mm. I've often found that they really appreciate, uh, they don't expect me to be perfect, but they, they expect me to be honest. And when I am honest with them, it's very easy for them to be understanding. Whereas if I were putting on a show and not, um, and not being emotionally and intellectually honest with them, I think it would be much easier for them to sort of work against me. I I totally agree. It's, it's something that you, I think, have the, in a way, the luxury of doing as a school teacher, whereas you maybe you wouldn't if you were a, a professor, you know, or like a newscaster or something like that, right? Those kinds of positions where you sort of have to put on a brave face um, versus if you're, you know, teaching kids day in, day out and you have that relationship, then you can really clear the air when things are going on um, and kind of work through them in that way. Yeah, but those are some floodgates you have to learn to open, especially as a young, disagreeable teacher. I would add that the gender I am doesn't help either. Um, uh, we can debate that. Or somebody can debate that with me later. I don't really care about that point. I want to move on to 29. All right, all right. So we'll put a, we'll put a little, little bookmark there for now. All right, so 29, nice and short. Blind, loving, wrestling touch, sheathed, hooped. 
sorry, <laughs> sheathed, hooded, sharp-toothed touch. Did it make you ache so, leaving me? Parting, tracked by arriving, perpetual payment of perpetual loan, rich showering rain, and recompense richer afterward. Sprouts take and accumulate, stand by the curb, prolific and vital, landscapes projected masculine, full-sized and golden. All right, well, I, I really don't know what to do with this at all. I mean, there are three couplets, six total lines. Um, there seems to be a dearth of subject pronouns um, in, in this. We, we do see at least one here in this question, you know, the sole question in the six lines. Did it make you ache so? Leaving me so you get that you, but line loving, rustling, touch, teeth, hooded, sharp tooth, touch. And so that's like all onomatopoeia and, um, and sort of just sounds coming out of your mouth. It's like clanking, sheathed, hooded, sharp toothed touch, all those T sounds and D sounds, those dentals. And uh, there's no subject, so it's hard to produce an image in your mind of what's actually happening there. Did it make you ache so leaving me? That, uh, is that a question about that ugly sentence before that um, to represent oneself with language so ugly as perhaps uh, a revelation of the ugliness within oneself? or something like that, I'm not sure. I, I, I wanna ask you a question about that. But then again, we get this, um, this strong uh, alliteration, parting tracked by arriving, perpetual payment of perpetual loan. Uh, the PPP sounds, the palatals, or, or the labials rather, um, where you're using your lips to make the sound pa pa pa. Rich showering rain and recompense Richard afterward, we get the R sounds uh, repeated there. This is, this is far more like a traditional poem. I would say harder to interpret, not as conversational as usual. The imagery, even though the wording is strong, the imagery I would say is weak. Rich showering rain, I guess I produce some dark rain and recompense richer afterwards. I guess I see a pasture that's green with a sun over it, if I really think about it. And then sprouts take and accumulate, okay, sort of biblical seeming like uh, where, uh, uh, what, what is the expression or the story, Wes, where um, you, you, you sow the seeds and some go into the bramble and some go into the desert, but then a few actually take roots. And that's sort of an idea of few, many are called and, but few are chosen. Um, yeah, the sower, I think it's called a parable, the sower. Usually. That's what, yeah, yeah. Landscapes projected masculine, full size and golden. And so we end with this again, idyllic and paradisical Edenic idea, this age of gold from Virgil's eclogues. Um, this, um, this, this time of Saturn from Virgil's Aeneid, um, where the golden race of man still lives, these landscapes projected masculine. Kronos, the first creator of the race of gold, not Zeus, the father of Zeus. Full size, perfect is what that means. And golden, also perfect in their intellects. And so uh, there, maybe there's some flood imagery going on here leading to an age of gold again, I, a wrestling, a demiurgic creation, blind. What do you do with this? Wes, yeah. I, I, I'm having a lot of trouble with it. No, no, I thought you wrestled with it really well. Like, I think, I think it's kind of a corollary to the previous, the, the couplet that ends 28, hmm. kind of flows right into this, this extended but relatively short meditation on yes. that same. I take that to be the subject, is you villain touch. Yeah, you're right. You're right and now it, that I look at it. You're and right. so you can take touch as 
as the noun, right? And he's talking to touch and he's calling it blind, loving, wrestling, and then sheathed, hooded. I want to say hooped all the time. Hooded, yeah, sharp toothed. So that's a serpent image, right? Ah, uh, yes. And, and it's, it's, it's definitely a penis, right? Let's, let's yeah. just say <laughs> Red Marauder is a dick. And he's, he's asking it if, it if it aches as it leaves him. And I think he's saying, like, the way that I ache as I sort of bear my soul here are you feeling something like that, right? Is, is touch also um, like a microcosm of me as a whole right now? Like how, how far down does the consciousness and the self-consciousness go? I take that to be kind of what he's, again, like wondering, like what are the limits of this, this philosophy that I've put forth here? Like how much does this really um, work, I guess, you know? And so um, that's, that's his big question. And he does, I think it's, it's practically like a haiku um, in its formality compared to what we've seen so far, because it is very balanced. Um, each of these uh, couplets has a similar thing going on in the first line and the second line, um, where they're, they're each kind of weighed and, and held in balance, the first part of each line versus the second part of each line. I think you noted the... Um, the alliteration going on, like this, the similarity in um, sounds that's, that sort of helps to string this all together. And I think that the symbol, yeah, does seem to be one of like um, fertility, essentially, right? Like after this uh, wild, crazy uh, orgasm thing, now we're gonna have some growth, some new growth. And it's, it's projected forward into, um, into a futurity where it's gonna be full-sized and golden. And I think it's kind of the counterpart to all the maternal imagery that he had shortly before this. Now, now we're getting into some definitely masculine imagery. Um, he uses that word here in any case. Yeah, even the idea that the landscapes are projected, like the use of projectiles and the spatial reasoning historically evolutionary speaking, uh, evolutionarily speaking of man and his ability to rotate spatially, generally due to the pragmatic necessity of being able to throw weapons, um, which, you know, continues to be something that we reward people with great eyes, and especially men with great eyesight for, right? Pilots, for, for, uh, mostly it's men. Um, if, yeah, at least in the Air Force and the Navy. Um, I don't know about commercially speaking probably a little bit less percentage-wise, but probably still pretty close to, I don't know, 90% or so. But it's interesting what you said about, um, what you said about this being a generation, but like a paternal generation idea, because the idea of creation from the seed of a godlike figure is very much um, not only Dionysian, but even Titanic. That is, that is essentially what Kronos did. He cut off the genitals of his father, Uranos, and they fell into the sea and created Aphrodite, whose name comes from off-air, Seafoam. And that there was a generative aspect to upsetting a new, an old idea and replacing it with a new one. And uh, I just sort of connect that to the idea of an age of gold uh, and the idea of a halo over a, an angel's head and the idea of a golden crown on a king. That uh, these are images of the creation of the space of like say perfect contemplation like the golden ladder in saturn for dante a masculine space in that it partakes of the intellect 
which is uh, which is traditionally spirited or, or or masculine in nature, as opposed to the sort of material receptive feminine in nature. This is sort of the Zeus, but even older than the Zeus to the Hera, um, the the eagle to the cow, as it were, and that. Maybe what he's suggesting is that he is currently planting ideas within our souls or minds, and that as they they sprout and come to bear fruit, we will partake equally with him of the golden age or of the golden place of Eden, and that we we share of that eternal place that humans can go to if they develop to that point, um, either I don't know ethically or intellectually or articulately. Yeah, yeah, and that that requires maybe like that kind of um, uh, dismantling that you're talking about with the the titanic um, deities, right? They're they're sort of chopped up and they become, and that's like you see that in a lot of mythologies. And there's maybe like a Danae kind of thing going on here too, where like Zeus has the golden rain, right? Yeah, that like shatters her. It's just she she can't handle that and that's isn't she one of the mothers of Bacchus in some of the stories or something I, I forget she is, she a different child? she is Jason's mother I believe oh, okay. he's one of the great heroes either Jason or no Perseus Perseus oh, okay. is actually so one of the great primordial human heroes yeah yeah, yeah. So, so it's like that's where you get heroism sort of arising out of um seems to be part of the mythological um undercurrent there I, I think it's yeah it's a very very rich uh dense little um coda to that to that um part 28 i and right. I, I just like the idea that eden might be a place of articulation and that perhaps that's what john picks up on with the logos that that which joins us mm -hmm. to the kingdom of heaven or the golden land or the golden age or the age of those who were eternal and perfect is is the word is language mm -hmm. culture um, and that that is the creation of the father or the intellect that only humans have. So the mother would be like our DNA, right? That all creatures have and partake of. But the kingdom of heaven, which is particular to humans or of the spirit or of the father, insofar as the father is logos, which is explicitly what the New Testament says and also what our oldest, like Sumerian legends and Marduk, who speaks fire words, say right. with eyes around his head that... Um, you know, the kingdom of heaven or Eden or the golden place is that place created by the ability to articulate sounds and create culture together. Wow. Uh, you know, that doesn't sound so wrong to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's keep partaking, shall we? <laughs> I think we can do one more. Yeah. Okay, okay. All truths wait in all things. They neither hasten their own delivery nor resist it, they do not need the obstetric forceps of the surgeon. Insignificant is as big to me as any, what is less or more than a touch. Logic in sermons never convince. The damp of the night drives deeper into my soul. Only what proves itself to every man and woman is so. Only what nobody denies is so. A minute and a drop of me settle my brain. I believe the soggy clods shall become lovers and lamps, and a compend of compends is the meat of a man or woman. And a summit and flower, there's the feeling they have for each other. And they are to branch boundlessly out of that lesson until it becomes omnific. 
and until one and all shall delight us, and we then. Well, that's what I've got on that, Wes. Yeah, sorry. Oh, sorry. I, I thought I was talking, but I think I wasn't. <laughs> I, uh, I was saying it's a kind of a blessing there, um, like a Beatitudes almost, right? Um, there at the end. Uh, and he's he's pretty um, pretty back in his old mode here, I think, of uh, expansiveness. But after this... Um, this passage uh, that we've gone through, it definitely has a different ring to it now. Um, there's sort of like little echoes of it too in these, in these parentheticals that you get. Um, you've got the birth imagery, right? Like the obstetric um, forceps <laughs> uh, that we don't need those, right? Um, we, can, we can do our own uh, delivering when, when the time is right. Um, and he's, I guess, uh, 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 joining up here the idea of of a truth that's insignificant with the idea of a touch and somehow that uh, that line that sort of line of logic there in that first stanza um, then he kind of picks up on that next he's like well maybe that was too logical right logic and sermons never convince and so he's going back to imagery and uh, feeling right directly stamp of the night so more of a again back to that kind of maternal womb-like uh imagery um and then we get that next parenthetical right so he's not really content with that answer either right only what proves itself to every man and woman is so and so kind of like asserting the the subjective experience of of everyone as being um true for them kind of uh and that what nobody denies, right? If you could like, if you could actually see it from the the perspective of of everyone, you could see that there's something that nobody denies, and that that is, you know, this whole question of of being that we've been tracking for a while here. That's what is so, right? Like if you could get at and um, distill the truth from every uh, individual, you'd have that which is, right? And so then we kind of come out of this um, with, again, the, the, what I want to say are like little beatitudes, right? So um, what is, is soggy clods and um, meat and flowers? And uh, I, I'm not sure quite what to make of um, branching boundlessly out of that lesson until it becomes omnific. That sounds pretty abstract to me, whatever that is supposed to mean. Um, but we wind up somewhere that looks pretty recognizable, right? One and all shall delight us and we them. That, that reciprocity and that, uh, yeah, it sounds a lot like a kind of Edenic state or a, a new golden age maybe um, after having passed through all of the sin and guilt and shame and all that good stuff. Well, that's, I mean... I have a lot to say on that. That's very good. But I accidentally looked down at 31, and that very first line is about the most beautiful line of poetry I've ever seen. And I think what gives the name of the book in which Song of Myself finds itself its name. And so I'm looking forward to hearing you read that tomorrow. I'll say nothing more about that and then scroll up. Um, the second thing is I think that um, Branch Boundlessly out of that lesson until it becomes omnific agrees with your interpretation. 
that all that is and that we have perceived as existent existing is worthy of the application of our attention and logic to it because in it there is truth that is waiting like Hermes in the stone or uh, something waiting to be extracted out like an alchemist or chemist would have believed uh, from that which is insignificant like uh, you know Dr. Seuss claims in the Grinch and that Whoville exists on you know like what the tip of a snowflake so it doesn't matter how big or small something is it, it, it more matters like how sophisticated the interrelations between it are which is also, I think, the idea behind Tron and sort of the digital cities within a circuit. Uh, but um, it's almost as if what the criticism of logic or philosophy departments and sermons or, you know, religious conversations are is sort of something we were just discussing in the pre-show. We were talking about how at times when somebody calls himself a sort of like a Christian or a doctrinaire thinker, like a Democratic or a Republican thinker, it's as if he or she is... Uh, limiting the range of his thought. And though one's thought can become more intense in that regard, I suppose, in like sort of the way that Aquinas or Augustine's, uh, maybe Kierkegaard's did, though I think he was, like I was saying to you earlier, trying to break out of that, um, that bondage. Um, and I, you'd have more to say on that than I would. You've studied him more. But that um, uh, what Whitman here is saying is, again, he's going for that arch liberality. The problem with logicians and those who give sermons is not that they talk about religious things and philosophical things, but that they should see the religious in all things, that they should apply their logic to all things, sort of like a, uh, a broadly Taoist point here, sort of a naturalist sort of point. But I, I think also it works with a theistic and divine point of view because it means that all things in the world you can derive information from and add those to the golden place or the store of knowledge that all humans have, and that he's actually very much pro-science in that way as well. You should study nature and see the beauty in nature. Um, and uh, he's sort of Socratic in that he uses that language and also very much Virgilian and uh, Dantistic in that they use the language of the people, Dante Tuscan, now called Italian, and uh, <laughs> Virgil uh, Latin instead of high ancient Greek. And so he talks about soggy clods and flower and, you know, branches and, uh, yeah. Did I lose you for a second there, Wes, or yeah? I, I, think I, I think I got most of it. My, my device is not behaving so well tonight, but I, I definitely agree that there's a limitation that comes with logic and sermons and that there's a definite utility to that as well, right? You can, you can certainly do a lot of things with logic. With mathematics, you can understand a lot of things. Um, and and it's also kind of a socially useful um, thing to be able to self-define and to give yourself a label or an identity or uh, it's almost like a password in some respects because people will Sorry, Wes, I lost you right at uh, people will. I'm not sure if the listeners heard more, but that's what I heard. No, no I, think, I think I better I better call it a night here, but just that, you know, as much as you, you limit yourself, you also 
open certain doorways. Like, I think, I think that you were kind of saying that because, um, that's what we were, we were discussing a little before this, uh, this session as we were thinking about, you know, where our place is within that larger, uh, sphere of, of media, of education and yeah. how we have so far strived to like, not define ourselves, but that there's certain barriers that, are, that come with. That's right. That's right. I completely agree. And, um, that to some extent the game is what can you make yourself into rather than what can you keep yourself from being? It's time for us to risk Captain Hook to avoid being Peter Pan. Uh, we don't want to be donkey from that African story I always love to tell, who could have been everything but, and yet became nothing. And so hopefully as Walt Whitman's uh, poem takes shape here, so will uh, uh, our endeavor and our goals here. And I think uh, continuing to offer professional development to other professionals and to people in homeschools and to people who want a non-traditional university-style education, um, we're going we're gonna to have more and more offerings uh, for people as we continue to go on. Right, right. As we kind of formulate, you know, what do we have to offer that sets us apart, that distinguishes us, and that also, you know, connects us to other people and organizations who are already doing really cool stuff that a lot of whom we've learned from, a lot of whom are totally new to us. Um, yeah, it's exciting. It's cool. Yeah. Well, thanks again. Yeah, thank I'm you. Looking forward, to, looking forward to 31. It sounds pretty, pretty rad. Yeah, it's, uh, I can't wait. Okay, well, talk to you soon. Okay, night.